you would, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be looking at Matthew 26, verses 47 through 56 today. We'll start with the reading of God's Word, Matthew 26, starting in verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber? with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Lord God, we thank you for this passage of scripture. And I ask God that you would help me to be accurate and clear and that you would use your word to change all of us as we examine what you are saying to us today. We thank you for your son. We thank you for what he was willing to do for us. And in his name we pray, amen. <clears throat> we are about to examine... Jesus being betrayed by one of his own disciples, arrested by an armed and hostile crowd who were under the authority of the most powerful Jews in Israel and abandoned by his closest followers. And this betrayal and arrest will lead to his execution on a cross. So many bad things are happening to Jesus in this passage. And in the midst of the hurt and the pain that Jesus must have been feeling, and in the midst of the terrible circumstances surrounding him, we can be tempted to think that Jesus' ministry is over, and that everything that he had worked so hard for is about to come crashing down. But as we're going to find out, Jesus was not a helpless victim here. 
Instead, we are going to see that Jesus is the one in charge of all of these events. He stands as Lord over what is happening, and everything is going exactly as planned. A plan that would use a great amount of evil to accomplish the greatest good. And this plan had been laid out in the scriptures, and everything in those scriptures are guaranteed to come true. And as we look at Jesus' control over things and scripture's rock-solid reliability, we're going to see the privilege that all believers have in trusting in a Savior who is at work even in the midst of the evil that's occurring around us. And we'll use our bad circumstances for our ultimate spiritual good. And we're going to see the privilege that we have in trusting in these scriptures, the recorded words of God that will always be fulfilled. Now, if you look at the back of your bulletin, you will see an outline of our sermon today. We're going to start with the kiss of the betrayer, the kiss of the betrayer. Matthew 26, verses 47 through 50 say, While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. So far, all of Matthew chapter 26 has been focused on the upcoming death of Jesus. We have seen Jesus prophesy it. We have seen Jesus' enemies plot it. We have seen Jesus picture it in the Lord's Supper. We have seen Jesus prepare his disciples for it as he warned them that that one of them would betray him and that all of them would abandon him. And we have seen Jesus pray about it as he gained strength to receive God's wrath on the cross by talking to his heavenly Father. And last week, our sermon ended in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus told his disciples, See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And today our passage begins with verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. As Jesus was in the middle of warning his disciples about the coming betrayer, the betrayer himself arrived on the scene. And as Jesus had previously said, this betrayer was one of Then it says, Judas came one of the twelve. The man leading this group of armed individuals was not an obvious enemy, but a professed friend. 
Judas was one of Jesus' specially chosen twelve. These twelve disciples had lived and learned from Jesus for several years now. They had been given the most instruction. They had witnessed the most miracles. They had seen more of Jesus' perfect life than anyone else. These twelve were Jesus' closest friends and followers during his ministry. And Judas, one of the twelve, arrived in Gethsemane to betray his master. He came with a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. The chief priests were the most powerful religious leaders, and the elders of the people were the main civil leaders in Israel. These Jewish leaders had always been opposed to Jesus, and they had plotted to kill him at the beginning of Matthew 26. And now we see the beginning of their plan, the beginning of their plot, as they send a great crowd with swords and clubs to accompany Judas to Gethsemane. Now, the Passover meal had already been eaten. The disciples had, had walked a long distance to the Garden of Gethsemane at the Mount of Olives, and Jesus had spent probably hours in prayer, which means that the time was late, and it was very dark outside. It would not have been hard for, for someone to, to escape or, or hide in the darkness, and it would have been difficult to identify Jesus' face. And from the perspective of, of Jesus' enemies, they would have imagined that Jesus would try to escape once he saw that the threat was near. So, Judas had come up with a way to indicate who Jesus was without letting Jesus know that he was about to be arrested. Verse 48 says, Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man. Seize him. Now, in our culture, the only people that we kiss is either our romantic partner or our little children. But in that time period, a kiss was a, a way to warmly greet someone. It was sort of like vigorously shaking someone's hand or giving someone a, a big hug. You kiss those that you had affection for. You kiss those that you cared about. Well, Judas was going to use this common way of greeting a friend to show the crowd who Jesus was. And after Jesus had been pointed out, they would seize him. They would arrest Jesus. In other words, Judas was going to use this sign of friendship to betray the best friend that he ever had. Well, Judas moved forward with this evil plan, and verse 49 says, And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Judas had experienced perfect love from Jesus. Jesus had been the most humble, the most caring and kind friend that Judas had ever known. 
Jesus had been the most powerful, the most wise and generous and truthful master that Judas could ask for. And yet, Judas, with false sincerity and false love, greeted Jesus with a kiss so that he could betray his friend and master. Now, besides Judas's greed, which we saw back in verse 15, we don't know all the reasons why Judas chose to be so treacherous towards his master. But Judas's deceptive disloyalty and the damage he was causing to his master was the worst betrayal in all the history of the entire world. The worst because Judas was betraying the perfect son of God. But Judas's deception was not so deceptive to Jesus. And ultimately, the one in charge of this situation was not Judas, but Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus had already predicted Judas's betrayal, and he had just told the disciples that his betrayer was coming. And, and now, after Judas had given his treacherous kiss, Jesus addresses him in verse 50, saying to Judas, Friend, do what you came to do. Je Jesus knew that this greeting was not the beginning of a social call, but was the cowardly act of betrayal. And Jesus told Judas to move forward with it. And Jesus did not run away. Jesus did not hide. Jesus did not fight. Instead, Jesus told Judas to finish the job. You see... Jesus did not only know about Judas's betrayal, but the betrayal itself was a part of the plan to save Jesus's people. The betrayal would lead to Jesus's death on the cross, would lead to Jesus's mission being accomplished as he bore the sins of his people and suffered divine punishment for their sins. So Jesus not only points out the horror of Judas's betrayal by calling him friend, but he also directed him to do what you came to do as Jesus wanted to complete his mission. Jesus was being betrayed but he was still in complete and absolute control of the situation. But sadly, Jesus' disciples did not fully understand that yet. And one of them tried to take matters into his own hand. Which leads us to our next point, the violence of the disciple, the violence of the disciple. Matthew 26, verses 51 through 54. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. 
For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? The parallel passage in John 18 tells us that the disciple who went all gladiator on the servant of the high priest was Peter. Impetuous and strong-willed Peter once again acted a little too quickly. His passion for Jesus was real, but he lacked wisdom in his actions. Verse 51 says that this disciple stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. The servant of the high priest was part of the armed group that Judas had led out to arrest Jesus. And when Peter saw this group seize Jesus, he acted immediately as he drew his sword and swung it at this armed servant. Now it was dark. And Peter was not a trained swordsman, and he was probably filled with both fear and excitement. So instead of landing a fatal blow, he missed the guy's head and lopped off his ear. Peter was attempting to defend his master. But after his bold attack on one of Jesus' enemies, Jesus did not endorse Peter's swipe, but condemned it. First, Jesus condemned it because it was sinful. Verse 52 says, Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Jesus is once again showing that he is the real person in charge here, as he commands Peter to put that sword back into its place. Why? For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. In other words, if you kill, you will be killed. This is a reference back to God's law that murderers should be punished with death. God commanded in Genesis 9 verse 6 that whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. He also commanded in Leviticus 24 17 that whoever takes a human life shall surely be to death. God is against the unlawful killing of others and endorses the death penalty for all who murder. Now, there is obviously lawful killing of others. Otherwise, God could not command for someone to be put to death. But according to both the Old and New Testaments, the primary institution responsible for doing lawful killings is the government. Romans 13.4 says that the governing authority does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, Peter was not the governing authority. And the servant of the high priest had not done anything deserving of death. So Peter's attempt to chop the guy's head off was morally wrong. It was a sin. And so Jesus rebuked him for his violence. 
Second, Jesus condemned Peter's violence because it was unnecessary. It was unnecessary. Verse 53 says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? If Jesus had wanted to, one prayer to his heavenly Father could have resulted in Gethsemane being invaded by all the armies of heaven. A legion during the Roman Empire usually referred to a group of 6,000 infantry plus hundreds of cavalry. So Jesus is saying that instead of having one fisherman with a sword, he could have had tens of thousands of supernatural beings descend from heaven to defend him. So Jesus rhetorically asked this question in verse 53 to show that he did not need Peter's protection. Peter's assault was completely unnecessary. And third, Jesus condemned Peter's violence because it was ignorant. Verse 54 says, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus was going to be arrested and led off to die. But his death was all a part of the prophecies and the plans of scripture. For the scripture to be fulfilled, Jesus would need to be arrested and executed. Psalm 22 says that the Christ, the promised Savior King, would suffer and die. Zechariah 12 says that the Christ would be pierced. Isaiah 53 says the Christ would die to pay for the sins of his people. It was clear from these and other scriptures that Jesus Christ had to be killed. Jesus getting arrested and being led off to the cross was going to fulfill, was going to bring these scriptures to their fullest completion. So Jesus rhetorically asked Peter, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? If Peter stopped Jesus from being arrested, then how could the promises of Scripture come true? Peter acted ignorantly as he wasn't thinking about the Scriptures. He wasn't thinking about how Jesus had to be led off to die for the Scriptures to come true. Jesus' betrayal and arrest was all a part of the plan laid out in Scripture. And Jesus made sure that not only Peter knew that, but that all in the crowd knew it as well. Which leads us to our next point, the arrest of the crowds. The arrest of the crowds. Matthew 26, verses, verse 55 through the first half of verse 56 says, at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place 
that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. <coughs> Jesus had confronted Judas and Peter, and now we see his confrontation with the crowds. Here is Jesus standing before a large group of armed men there to arrest him and lead him off to a sham trial and an unjust execution. And yet, instead of acting like a terrified fugitive, he spoke as a serene lord over the situation. He said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. Jesus is questioning the, the manner and the timing of their arrest. He had taught in one of the, the, the middle of the most public places in all of Israel, and they had not arrested him. Jesus was not an evil criminal who caused trouble and then slipped into hiding. If the Jewish authorities truly believed that he was a wicked villain who broke the law, they could have openly arrested him on one of the many days he had taught in the temple. So Jesus asked them, why did you come out against us, uh, against me, excuse me, as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Why did they come for him at night, pursuing him as if he was a robber who was hard to catch rather than a man who was constantly seen in public? And why did they come in such force, bringing swords and clubs when he was known as a peaceful public teacher? You see, Jesus' rhetorical question was meant as a rebuke to the crowds. He was showing them that they were not really interested in justice. A public arrest during the day with a public trial would have more clearly revealed Jesus' innocence and shown the Jewish authorities to be unjust and wicked rulers. So instead, they forcefully arrested Jesus during the night out of the public eye so they wouldn't have to deal with as much scrutiny. The manner and the timing of their arrest showed that what they were doing was wrong. And Jesus made that clear to them. But he also made clear that even though they were in the wrong for their actions, God's plan was still moving forward. God was using their wickedness to accomplish his good. We see that at the beginning of verse 56 where he tells them, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. They did what they did so that the scriptures would be brought to their fullest completion. Their unjust actions would bring about God's plan. Evil would not stop the scriptures from being fulfilled. Instead, that evil would cause the scriptures to be fulfilled. 
But there was one more scripture that needed to be filled, fulfilled at this event. <coughs> and we see that in our final point. The falling away of the disciples. The falling away of the disciples. Matthew 26, the second half of verse 56 says, Then all the disciples left him and fled. When they first went out to the Mount of Olives, Jesus' disciples had claimed that they would die for him. And now, only a few hours later, every single one of them abandoned him. They walked out on their master. They left Jesus to suffer alone. This was prophesied in the scripture that Jesus had quoted and explained back in Matthew 26, verse 31, where he told the disciples, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus quoted Zechariah 13, explaining that it had foretold the truth that Jesus' disciples would abandon him. And in Matthew 26, 57, that prophecy was fulfilled. It would bring Jesus much pain. But it also showed that everything that was happening was going according to God's plan. As we wrap things up, I want to conclude by looking at two implications of what we have just examined and learned today. <coughs> Number one, Scripture is guaranteed to be fulfilled. Scripture is guaranteed to be fulfilled. Jesus made it clear that events were unfolding so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Things were happening so that everything promised or prophesied in God's word would happen. And if events must unfold, just like the scripture says, if the wicked people with their wicked plans cannot stop the fulfillment of the promises of God, then we can have complete trust in what the Bible says. We can have a sure hope that when the scriptures make us promises, those promises will be kept. And number two, Jesus is always in control. Jesus is always in control. Even when it looked like everything was falling apart, when Jesus was being betrayed, was surrounded by his enemies, when his disciples abandoned him, Jesus was still in control. 
He was not surprised or, or confused or defeated by the events that occurred. Instead, he calmly moved forward, directing events, rebuking those who sinned, and explaining that everything was going according to God's plan. Jesus was not thrown off by the worst betrayal and sins that could ever be committed. The arrest which would lead to the execution of the only perfect human to ever walk this earth was not outside the Savior's sovereignty. And if, and if, Jesus was in control of the worst sin and mess that this world has ever seen. Don't you think that he is in control of all the lesser sins and messes in this world? And just like Jesus would bring this sinful mess to a conclusion that would be for the ultimate spiritual good of his people. Don't you think that Jesus can use the sin and mess that surrounds you to bring about and accomplish the greatest spiritual good in your life? If you are a true believer, if you have repented and trusted in Jesus Christ alone, the one who died and rose again, then Jesus' complete control should give you a whole lot of hope. As Jesus has the power to use evil for good and the power to sustain his people until he returns. One of the greatest modern hymns is one titled, In Christ Alone. And the final verse of that hymn says this about a believer. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell. No scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Lord God, we thank you for that wonderful promise. God, this world, this world is a mess. Sin is everywhere. 
and sin is in our hearts. And pain and suffering is everywhere. Life is very, very messy. But God, we thank you that your word will be accomplished. And if the promises that you have made to us in your word are going to be fulfilled no matter what, are going to be kept no matter what. And we thank you, God, that our, our Savior is not only our forgiver, is not only our redeemer, is not only our friend, but is the sovereign Lord over the universe and will work things out for our ultimate spiritual good. We thank you for that, Lord God. And I ask that you would help us to trust you this week. In your son's name we pray. Amen.